You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Hey, if you're looking to get more information on how this industry works and how you can work in it, check out the Producers Perspective Pro.com. The Producers Perspective Pro, check it out today. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Hello, everybody. Here we are once again in my office in Midtown Manhattan, where sirens go off about every 15 minutes. You'll hear one, I'm sure. We are recording another episode of the Producer's Perspective podcast. This is like, I think, 128, the 128th episode of this podcast. So, which means if this is your first one, you've got a lot of listening to do to catch up. But you picked a great one to start with. I've had a lot of writers on the podcast. I've had a a lot of producers on the podcast. But I have not had many critics on the podcast. (laughs) We had Ben, we had Charles, and now we have Chris. Please welcome to the podcast the chief theater critic of the Chicago Tribune, Mr. Chris Jones. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Chris, which came first for you, the love of the theater or the love of writing? The love of the theater, I would say. Yeah, my interest, primarily, my my initial interest as a young person was the theater before I thought I would become a critic or indeed a writer about the theater. So, at the age of about 14, 15, I started obsessively going to the theater. I grew up in Manchester, England, and I would go to the Royal Exchange Theater, which did a lot of innovative work there, and this would be the uh, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, The Contact Theater, which did a lot of Brecht at that time. And I just, uh, if I was going on a date, I would try and get my date to go to the theater with me. So that was, so I went, I'd say starting at about 14 or 15 years old, I just started going to the theater. I tried that date thing a lot. when I didn't have a lot of dates in high school, actually. No one wanted to go to the theater with me. And what did you think you wanted to do in the theater once you started to think, oh, this is a, I want to pursue this as a career. What was the first thing you thought about? Well, I, I think I developed a love of two things. And I I'm lucky to combine the two. I developed a love of the theater and I developed a love of newspapers and the media. So I've managed to combine the two right from an early age. I've been sort of fascinated with media and uh, and particularly with arts journalism. And I, I, I guess I figured out, you know, pretty soon after college that I really wanted to be, uh, that I wanted to write about the theater. So Manchester, England, England, yeah. across the Atlantic Sea. That's the, the place, goes. that's the place. And how did you arrive here? So I, I came here uh, when I was 20, some 30 years ago. I came when I was uh, 21 years old. I came to grad school at Ohio State, Columbus, Ohio. I did a PhD in theater, in fact, in the 80s. Uh, got my PhD at the age of 26 in 89. And while I was in grad school, I started writing for a man called Dick Humler, who was a legendary theater editor at Variety. So I started covering Ohio for Variety. Back in the days when Variety actually covered Ohio, quite seriously, in fact, in the 80s. 
And I started seeing Josie Abadie's work up at the Cleveland Playhouse and going down to the Cincinnati Playhouse. And I started what would become sort of a 15, 20-year association with Variety um, with Dick Humler as my kind of mentor. They paid us by the inch in those days. So you'd look at the paper and you'd be like, I hope they didn't cut anything because that meant they were cutting another 20 bucks. And I covered a whole variety of shows there. And then over the years of Variety, I developed this kind of specialty in out-of-town tryouts. So over the years, they would send me to I think I've probably seen more out-of-town tryouts than anybody else in the country. So I went all over the country just seeing shows in pre-Broadway engagements. So let's talk about that for a yeah. second. Do you, because as an out-of-town tryout specialist, and now you're <laughs> if in there Chicago, is such a thing. Yeah, where if there is you such do a get thing. a lot of Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. Do you review shows a little bit differently when you know or think that the producers and creatives have somewhere they want to go with it beyond like you know the developmental process is not complete yeah how does that affect your reviewing well i i think you do i i developed over the years some comfort with the idea of a show not being finished so the idea that you're reviewing something that's not done so logically you can say they should do this or they should do that or this would be better if this happened and i think that is is a for a critic is interesting because you get to sort of you know you feel a little bit like maybe the goodness of the art can be assisted by you i suppose but that, there's also perils with that you can't go too far down that road it's not your show and and also wherever you're reviewing a show say in chicago for example that audience is entitled to a good show so that that audience is entitled to know what they are buying at that moment so it's not like you sort of come in and go yeah well this is all about the new york production in six months time it's also about what people are actually seeing there and then they're still charging money there's still full price tickets being sold but i have developed i think a sense of um a sense of comfort with the fact that you can write about something that's not yet done and you can write about it as such whereas when a show reaches broadway you go well there it is that's what it is it's, you know there's not really a lot you can do it's sort of the end of the road in the sort of theatrical mystique of these things broadway is the end goal always in for certainly for say a big commercial musical and when you're sitting there on broadway you go okay this is it this is it that didn't work that did that didn't that didn't out of town you know you have the ex the, the sort of you feel the you know the tension of that the larger amount of work being done at that moment i would say that people people often forget how difficult it is to make changes out of town indeed it's difficult i find 70 percent of the time the shows don't change all that much so you show up i, I roll into new york six weeks later and it's still, or maybe three months later and it's just got the same problems it had when it was in chicago but sometimes people do they go, okay, you know, some smart producer goes, okay, this is, we've got to fix this. And, and then shows can be transformed. And I've got a, like a list of them that I think were transformed. My, the one that changed the biggest in my estimation was moving out, which I saw in Chicago and was pretty much a mess and then was turned into a hit. And I always say that's because Twyla Tharp had such control over it, right? So she only had to argue with Twyla Tharp about Twyla Tharp's show. As distinct from your typical musical where you've got the producer who thinks this, you've got the writer who thinks that, you've got the, you know, uh, you've got all these different people who are all there. I, I, I think the tricky part is not to rearrange the proverbial deck chairs, right? That sometimes flaws in shows are structural and are sort of primary. And, you know, you do sometimes... I do sometimes think that producers don't always go deep enough when they're trying to change them. I remember that moving out controversy, if you will, because yeah. Michael Riedel was proclaiming that show dead right. in the water in <laughs> Chicago. And I right. remember your review, actually, as well, saying that there's life here, there's life yeah. here. 
and they and they did turn it around. I'm reminded actually there's a great book out there, listeners, uh, called Originals, and they talk about feedback and how focus groups may not provide the best feedback as peers, your peers in your industry. And reviewers are part of our peers, right? Yes. Has a producer ever reached out to you or a creative ever reached out to you after a review and said, hey, will you sit with me for an hour and give me a little more insight so I can make this show better? Well, I've, I've always made it, if somebody calls me up and says, what do you think about something? I generally will talk to them on the phone. I've, I've always done that. I mean, I don't think you can sort of slam the phone down and say, I read the review and that's it. So I've, you know, I've often talked to people on the phone about to expand ideas that I've written about, but I try to do everything in public, right? That's kind of my ethical job. I have to sort of, you know, it's, I try and say everything that anybody can read it. And I take that sort of, you know, that part of it pretty seriously. I, I think that it's, you know, it's, it, it, these shows are such enormous, as you well know, are such enormous investments these days. And, and often they're, they're, the out-of-town tryouts tryout are very, very tense. I mean, the best one ever that I ever saw, far and away, was the producers, which I remember going to see. And I walked in there and I thought, you know, you know, this is kind of, this is pretty perfect. It probably seemed more perfect than it turned out to really be to me. But I recall on that night thinking this could not be improved upon. Maybe you could cut out 10 minutes. But then I'm like, well, why would you cut those great 10 minutes? So, still funny. So, still still funny. so that was the, for me, that was, and it was just, that there was also a mood, you know, there's a mood when people have a hit, as you know. And I remember walking down the street, I could look out of the corner of my eye, I could see Mel Brooks and Bancroft is still alive. Many of the people involved in that, of course, are no longer Tom Meehan. Was there. And you could just see this, just this giddiness about them. It was a really spectacular night that I never forget it. When you're writing a review and it's a review of a show that, let's face it, just wasn't very good. Yeah. How do you, do you think about the artists involved? Do you think about the folks that like, oh, this could, and I, you know what, we'll flip it. You write a review that's really, really great. Do you think, oh, this could make a career? Oh, this could hurt a career? Does that, how do you separate yourself from, because you're a nice guy. We've met on many occasions. You're, <laughs> you're a nice critic. Oh, I try to be a nice guy. Well, I, I think the great Claudia Cassidy, who is one of my predecessors at the, in my job at the Tribune, used to say that a critic only has any power to the extent that people act on what they say. That's the sense. That was always her definition of what a critic does. Do, do people believe you? That's the number one thing. And if I say something that is not good is good, um, then you become the boy that cries wolf. And then eventually people go, yes, yeah, Chris Jones, he likes everything and they don't go. And that serves no, it does not serve the theater. It does not serve the audience. It does not serve my readers. So my number one rule for myself is to tell the truth. I have it taped to my computer. I say, it says, tell the truth. So I do my damnedest to tell the truth and to put aside all of the noise around that, like what people are saying about me online, say, or what, what the effect of the review will be to just tell the truth. And I, and that is my sort of my number one thing. I don't think I make it a, I, I try not to be personal. I don't think there's most people in the theater are there because they love it and they're doing their, you know, they're doing their, doing their damnedest work for the most part. Um, and I try to, have respect for the fact that this is, you know, work that people are doing from a good place. Now, some shows in my career, a small number, I would describe have been cynical. But you know what I mean by a cynical show. And I think then you can find yourself sort of offended or annoyed. And that I have written those reviews where I've gone to see something. And, and cynical is always my word that I would choose. It's different from an honest failure. 
cynical show in some way that just then I think you have to say, look, get out of town with this or this is don't take people's money. And I've, I, I could, there's been some of those, but not many. Most of the time you've got good, talented people doing their best. As you well know, it's difficult that, that, that musicals, especially big Broadway musicals are very, very difficult. I find, I guess, more than anything, that out-of-town moments are not true enough. So you spend a lot of your time, I think, as an out-of-town critic saying, this should be truer. This should be more honest. This should be... The other one is real. Is it actually real? And and often you get moments in these shows that, that are just are not authenticated. And sometimes they find that authenticity by the time they get to New York. Sometimes they don't. But, you know, those are the sort of the... It's a fascinating... It's a sort of fascinating thing. How do you maintain your freshness in when you see so many damn shows? I mean, I know I'm a Tony voter, and every time Tony yeah. voter season rolls around, I'm like, oh god, I don't know if I want to go to the theater tonight. And frankly, I try to actually cancel my tickets if I'm not in the mood. Yeah, but it's, this is your job, yeah. theater, night after night after yeah. night. Some I'm, nights I'm sure you don't want to go. No, I mean, and I it's not my leisure activity, right? So I don't. So I get asked a lot. Do, do you know? Do you go to the theater on your night off? I go, no. I'd rather go out to dinner. I'd rather climb a mountain. I'd rather do anything than go to the theater on my night off. But I do go to probably five or six shows a week, most weeks. And no, it's the the, the thing that I find hardest, I guess, is the play I've seen many, many, many times. That is a very, that's quite challenging, especially if it's a young company. So let's say there's this young company in Chicago that's doing, I don't know, Three Sisters or something, and there's a bunch of 23-year-olds, and you go, you know, all right, is that really, what could they possibly do that I've not seen. And you have to go, no, 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 stop that. That's lousy talk. You know, you've got to go and you've got to put yourself in the mindset of what they're trying to achieve. And, and I started as a critic very young in my twenties. And obviously I've gotten older and you become, I, I think what I've noticed about the way people perceive me is they perceive me now as a sort of the man, if you like, or an older guy, right? Or a middle-aged guy, which is what I am. And I don't feel any different from that young critic who was writing when I was 25 and variety. And it, and so that, that I find a bit of a, I find that jolting. I'm always like, really? You think of me like that way? Cause it's not how I feel myself, but keeping fresh is a job requirement. I suppose my immediate predecessor, Richard Christensen of the Tribune, he wrote this book about Chicago theater and he, he wrote, I think it's in the introduction. He said something like, I was always anxious to get to the theater. And I always think that's a great, you know, that, I don't know whether I would say that quite the same way, but I do, I settle into my seat. I was thinking this on Broadway last night. You settle into your seat at a Broadway show and you go, yeah, okay, here we are. And it's, it's a cool place to be. And, and it's, it's equally interesting when it works and when it doesn't. I try to access that part of me when I was 16, 17. I remember <laughs> coming into New York and seeing a show and someone asking me later, like, how was it? And I was like, what do you mean, how was it? It was a Broadway show. Right. Of course right. it was good. Right, They're right, all good. <laughs> right. Not, think that Not way. true. <laughs> so you've, you've been a critic since you yeah. were in your early 20s. Yeah. Obviously, a lot has changed yeah. in criticism. Yeah. And just how criticism is voiced by many different people. Yes, it is. Talk a little bit about that and how it's changed in positive, negatives. Well, you know, there's a number of, that's a great question. There's a lot of things that have changed about being a critic. Number one is that the media itself has gone through 
tremendous, tremendous changes. And arts journalism is no surprise to anybody has been buffeted around and that the number of theatre critics in jobs like mine has been reduced. I'd say probably now full-time theatre critics in the US, there's probably less than 20, right? And I would say if we'd been having this conversation 20 years ago, there would have been more like 100, maybe 200, 150, something like that. Most regional dailies no longer have full-time theatre. So it's become a sort of a big city phenomenon, just a small number of papers. I'm lucky to be at one that supports the theatre, and the theatre supports the paper, so it's not like they're a charity, let me say. So there, there is obviously some stress there, and the migration online has killed off what I would describe as the adjacent reader, which is to say that from much of the history of the theater in New York and Chicago, you could open the New York Times or the Tribune, and you might be starting to read something else, and your eye would look over and you would see a review of a Broadway show. Now what's happened is that those readers, much of the conversation has migrated to more specialist channels. So I think you've got fervent Broadway fans who have all kinds of avenues to get their information and are as fervent as ever and really consume online criticism and online gossip and all the rest of it. But but the, it, it's a more specialized. In other words, the, the percentage of readers who really know and love the theater or work in it has increased. So I am always conscious of trying to maintain what I would call the general audience, which means that you've got to write more and more for people who are not going to see the show won't go, regardless of if you tell them, you know, it's worth their firstborn child, they're not going to go. So you have to write in such a way that it's interesting to them. That's my number one goal, because that's the bulk of the audience. So that I think is that that I think is a big change. There's a lot more instant feedback. So critics get attacked on social media, for example, far more, you know, there wasn't social media in that way before. So that is you have to ignore that that's difficult for critics. And one of the big dilemmas is how much do you engage in that? And whenever I talk to young critics, I always get into this with them. Do you do you go on Facebook and say, no, I'm not that at all. I didn't mean that. The problem with that is that you, you want to avoid the perception of a conflict of interest. It's difficult to be seen in an argument with somebody online who's an artist and then turn around and review them. I like to think that I, it doesn't matter what you say about me, the review will be the same. And I take that as a, just a professional thing. But that doesn't mean people perceive it that way. Hence the perception of a conflict of interest, right? So I think that's a tricky thing. So generally speaking, I believe that you shouldn't interact for that reason. But the paradox is, is that people want a conversation now. They don't want a review and then you disappear. They don't know who you are. They sort of demand a conversation. And if you don't talk, they tend to come after you until you do. So I'm sort of, it's a constant, I describe that as a constant negotiation and navigation. The other thing that's changed is that people very quickly now say, critic X thinks this because they are X. You know, say a guy or an older person or a young person or this, this. So the identity of the critic is, and there are critics who sort of revel in that, that this is who I am, this is my political point of view, this is my review. I guess I've always been a little old school that says, okay, who you are doesn't really, shouldn't matter. You should walk into a show. You should say, what's, what are these art, you know, what are these creative artists trying to do? And particularly, who are they doing it for? Who is this audience for? And the audience can be as diverse as America itself. And you have to represent that audience, not yourself. And generally, you know, when you don't like something, people will say, well, he didn't like you because he was this. And that irritates me every time. Because I'm like, no, actually, I, I'm really trying to, with every fiber of my being, I'm really trying to forget my own 
whatever. Obviously, I have my perceptions of the world. Obviously, I come from where I come from. But this profession requires you to do everything in your power to not be that. And I try. You talk about this conflict of interest, which is, is such an interesting one. And I remember my podcast with Ben Brantley, and he talked about how he doesn't have any associates or friends in the theater. Right. Like, he couldn't. Because of that potential. Yeah. Which I find very sad. I mean, you, you love the theater, right? Yes. It's been in your blood since you were 14 years old. Yeah. How do you deal with this when you want to engage with a theater artist that you respect socially? When you see someone at a party, how is that like for you? Well, the, the other complication with this, before I answer that, I'll say this, is that the other question, problem or issue that comes up is, is that most of us, at some point in our career, have been obliged to report on things. And that's certainly true of me. I've Certainly when I worked at Variety, I covered the road business. That was my other thing. I would, you know, write about the economics of the road and all of that. And that meant you had to call up producers and say, okay, you know, what's going on with Showboat? And is Garth Drabinsky really cooking the books? And blah, blah, blah. Yes, you had to, yeah, yes. yeah, right. You had to, you had to, so most of us have always had to deal on some level with that because reporters have to talk to people. So I've never been in a position where I'm not ever, you know, and I, frankly, I don't think in the future anyone is going to be because, you know, reviews, reviews only in the internet world, only so many people read reviews and the arts coverage has to be more than that now. And so you have to be, you know, you have to have those, you have to be able to talk to people, I think in the new world order. And I think pretty much everybody accepts that. That, that, that this is now that that those days are just sort of gone. Now, can you have be a personal friend of somebody you're reviewing? Not easily, no. And I would say I don't really have any friends in the theater either. I have, you know, acquaintances, I have people I am certainly a human being with, but I don't I try not to seek out people in the theater that's true it's tragic for me i just i've never felt <laughs> no, so much it's not like it's not like you can't it's not like you can't you know you walk away i mean if you're in a bar and someone's standing there i'm not saying you don't walk over there and talk about their work and you know there are there are certainly times if someone has an issue with something and they say look will you come with me to a bar and i, I really want to talk about this I, I say okay and i go i've done it many times and they they'll often attack me for 20 minutes and you know you, you have to let people talk you have to talk to people but you have to try and maintain your integrity because that's really all we have, right? That I can honestly sit here and say, I say what I think about things. And if, if you can't do that, you have no value to readers. If you're on the take or if you're, if you're cozying up to this, that and the other, it's, it's not, it's just not doable. It's just not doable. And it's just part of the game. Do you read your peers' reviews of shows before, after, at any point? I, I don't read other reviews of shows at all before I write them because that really messes with you. I really don't. I, I That's like absolutely not. And I usually read what other people have said afterwards. Not always, but I do. I read the critics that I like, and I, I, I do for the most part. I think it's sort of hypocritical to be a critic and, and not read other people's reviews when you're expecting people to read your review. The same way if somebody asked me to do an interview with me, I generally say yes, because I spend all my life asking people to give up time to talk to me. So it's hypocritical. If you were to say, will you do a podcast with me? And I would say no. Why would I do that? I spend most of my life asking people to give me that time. So it's only decent to give you time, right? I mean, I, I really feel that. And I, I think that that's, but it's not to say any of this is easy, Ken. It's not. It's a complex matrix of things. You talked about critics being 100 or so 20 years ago yes. now, 20. Yes. 
What does it look like 20 years from now? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. I, I think Broadway has had something of a renaissance. I think that's true. I think if you look at the upcoming season, there are shows in it that will pass into the popular consciousness in the way that Hamilton has done this past season, probably didn't have those shows, to my mind, with the exception of maybe Evan Hansen slightly. But this next season does with Harry Potter, which it will be big news here, and Frozen, which whether it's good or bad will be big news. And so those shows are important, I think, because, as was Hamilton, because they, they create interest. I mean, for example, in Chicago, the Hamilton production, anything we wrote about it, people read. And of course, we all have bosses and they all notice how many people are reading what we're writing. So we write more of it. And I, we ran the, the Tribune, ran the, my review of the Chicago Hamilton production on the front page, which is the first time ever that a theater review, in, at least in my years at the paper, has ever been on the front page. And nothing to do with me and everything to do, not even to do with the quality of the show, really, just to do with the interest in the show. So to some degree, critics are trapped in how interested people are in the theater. So I think it's the theater's job to get as central as possible back into the zeitgeist. And I think the lesson of Hamilton is just that when the theater engages in matters of substance, it pays off. Doesn't mean every show has to, but it pays off. And then the media coverage, the people who are invested in the media coverage, that becomes easier when the work appears substantial. There's a constant prejudice against what I would describe as triviality. So in other words, the constant fight at any big newspaper is that the theater is trivial. And so the critic has to write in such a way that it's not trivial. And you have to hope that what you're writing about is deep enough and complex enough that it won't be perceived as trivial. And I, I really actually mean that, that that may sound like a simple truism, but I think it's the biggest challenge facing the theatre. It's the classic prejudice, the showbiz page. And that has to be, it has to become, the challenge is always being central to the discourse. Chicago is such a great theatre town. Yeah. What what can Broadway or New York City learn from Chicago? What do you guys do there that's <laughs> really good that we should do more of? Well, I mean, some of it's a simple real estate issue, right? The, the, it's still possible in Chicago to have your own theater and to be able to afford to run it, you know, on a reasonable budget. So that, so that just helps. I think we have, we have an interest in new work and we also have a, generally speaking, a lack of a hierarchy. And what that means in practical terms is that good shows there, even at the lowest level of production, have an ability to sort of bubble up to the top. And some of that is, some of that truly is the media's pre, this predates me, but the media's willingness to go and see a broader variety of things. So we go to things and 20 seats and, and we go to things, you know, like Hamilton. So, and I think that we don't have the rigors of the, the genres of things like Broadway, up Broadway, first string, second string. We just don't really do any of that. And that helps sometimes work or talent that just is squeezed out here because it's not falling into established sort of boxes. Didn't get that particular break in that particular Broadway show. Talent can be found. That means you've got to kiss a lot of frogs, but talent can be found. So that's my number. That's the number one thing is, is our, you know, is the greatest talent really coming to the top? And I think if you cut out all the noise, a, a critic has to really be a slave to talent. That's what we are. We're just looking for talent all the time and things that work. In all of your frog kissing lately right. in Chicago, anyone you've got your eye on that you uh, think we should, uh, everyone listening should watch? Well, you know, we've, we've got a lot of 
of, we've had a lot of innovative companies that have been doing some great work. Um, there's a small company called Steep Theater that introduced a lot of British playwrights, for example, that New York, that had never been produced in New York. I, I think they, they do great work. The House Theater is a creative sort of individual new work kind of thing that's been around for a while. A Red Orchid Theater, which is Michael Shannon's home theater, is amping up its game a lot this year. I think I've been kind of impressed with what they're planning. They've got a, they're taking a production to the Mikado opening in a couple of weeks. You know, Steppenwolf has gone through a sort of a reinvention and I think has an exciting season too. We have a major new theater opening on Navy Pier at Chicago Shakespeare Theater called The Yard, which is a brand new 900 seat theater, which is great. With flexible spaces, it's designed with sort of these scenic towers so it can be flexible. I'm excited about that. Riders Theater, a new theater, relatively new theater, has a beautiful new home in suburban Chicago, did its first out of town Broadway tryout of a show called Trevor, the you know, the inspiration for the Trevor project, promising, needs a lot of work, but promising. And so, you know, they, 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 some of them are underfunded. And I think we also lack a good commercial sector. We lack small producers. So I think one of the great dilemmas of Chicago is that people close hits all the time. I find that probably the least effective practice in Chicago. That what happens is a nonprofit will make plans for a year. They'll find a show is a runaway hit. They'll realize other act- actors will take other gigs. Other shows will need to come in and they'll close the show. And you're like, and then they'll be, it'll be sold out and the people that my readers can't get in and they're like, wait, it just closed. That's the worst. Whereas New York is so much better at at least investing in the future of the show. That's our dilemma is lack of commercial producers. If you could get all the writers in the world in one room (laughs) who all desperately wanted a great Chris Jones review, what would your advice be to them? I believe that most great plays are about how we're all taken from this planet at a time and place not of our choosing. And that is the reality. Almost every Broadway hit's really about that. And I think that's always good advice, that we're always thinking about our own death. So I think that's right. And I think be true and be honest. Uh, and those are the, the things, truth and vulnerability are the qualities I think that are the most abiding. Is it true? We just, we, we're just always seeking truth. And I think if you go every night, you're just like, will it be true? Will it be true? Will I feel that? Will I be, mo- will I be emotionally engaged? And then the other thing that I would add to that in this particular moment is that most things in the world are complicated and that while we all feel these passions at the moment, and I feel them as strongly as anybody, the theater is often best served by complexity. That I think at most great plays, you walk out of the door and you think, huh, that's more complicated than I thought when I walked in. That. The great writers in our, in our history are writers of complexity. And that is the other thing that I think there's always a danger of not enough complexity. So I would say at the moment, I find myself going, will this be a complex experience? Complex, like full and uh, and sort of indicative of all of the shades of meaning in our lives, indicative of how the world is a negotiation and how the world is people are doing their best for the most part and colliding with each other and there is bad things happening and good. Is it complex does it give a full picture or is it just one note that you know five minutes into the play what's going to happen complexity that's the byword for me here's a james lipton like question for you (laughs) of all the shows you've seen throughout your entire life not even your life as a critic yes if you had to see one of those shows every day for the rest of your life what show would it be 
Wow, that's it's it's really difficult. I, I I mean, there were a couple of shows that I thought were truly extraordinary. One was David Cromer's production of Our Town when it was first produced in Chicago. I I emphasize that because it was never the same here. But when it was first done, and in Act Three of Our Town, Cromer had gone out on the street and literally found street people to uh, people on the street in all the senses of that phrase to be part of Act 3. So you walk back into Act 3 of Our Town and this little basement theater was filled with hundreds of people. Uh, It felt like hundreds, scores of people, right? Of all kinds of diversity, of all kinds of age and type and socioeconomic sensibility who you had no idea were part of the play. And it was one of the most single stunning things. If I could say one moment, you know, that was a great moment. Watching I Want to Be a Producer, that was a great moment. I'll never forget that as long as I live. I won't forget August Osage County in a hurry. That was a sort of a remarkable, that was a remarkable piece of work. Again, on that first night when nobody knew what it was going to be, I thought, okay, here's a writer who's always been interesting, Tracy Letts, who now has written a major work. And that, that, that was tremendously exciting. I thought that was, I, I thought that was really, really great. Uh, you know, so th- there are these moments that you cherish. I suppose. There was the production of Iceman Cometh, with, which I didn't think was 100% successful, but there were moments in that, individual moments that were simply extraordinary. And there was a, particularly for somebody who works in Chicago, because there were so many Chicago actors of such distinguished history in one show at once. And I'd never seen that, and I don't know that I ever will again. So for me, these great moments are, they're like a collection of small moments. That's what you, that's what you get. And, and occasionally it all works sublimely, but I just live for these moments that I won't forget. All right, my last question, which is now known as my genie question. Yes. I want you to imagine the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you. Did you like Aladdin, by the way? No. Okay. (laughs) The genie from Aladdin comes to visit you anyway and says, Chris, I don't read reviews, so I want to come and thank you for your contributions to the theater over the many years and everything you've done to support new artists. Yeah. And I'm going to grant you one wish, even though you didn't like my show. What's the one thing that drives you crazy about Broadway or theater in general today? Something that gets you angry, that would make you write a scathing letter to the editor. What would make you so upset that you'd ask this genie to wish away in an instant? When theater artists forget their audience. Simple as that. When theater artists become obsessed with other theater artists and their perception by other theater artists and don't think about the people in the seats, the people who have shown up, have paid their money, and not only paid their money, frankly, but given up their time and they either insult their audience or they complain about the audience or they, or they don't consider their feelings or, and some of these audience members have been supporting this art form for their entire lives. Their entire lives. I know people who've been, I've watched at the theater for 30, 40 years. And I think that they, they are ultimately, the theater is a time bound art form and it's about caring about the audience. That's ultimate. It doesn't matter what sector of the theater it is. It's about that. And the theaters that are most successful and the shows that are most successful get that. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much My for pleasure. agreeing to be on this <laughs> podcast today and for all that you do. I'm a fan of your work. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe. We'll see you next time. Don't forget to check out the Producers Perspective Pro. Tons of new features on everything from how to get a producer to read your script to how to sell tickets on social media and tons more. Check out the ProducersPerspectivePro.com today.
Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.